Well, today I'm going to take you through a little bit of a journey. This is a little bit of a dangerous path. I'm going to take you down a journey of how I kind of encountered this scripture and walked through it over the past couple of weeks. And uh, I went through it, and I was like, oh, that's good. And I reflected on it, and then I took another path through the scripture. I'm like, oh, wait, that's really good. Uh, and I started reflecting on that, and then I went through it a third time, and I'm like, oh, wait, I think that's the actual point here. Uh, and uh, so the best way I can tell you about these three passes through the scripture that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a grumbling heart and a plentiful harvest and generous grace. But I, I'm a simple farm boy from Michigan, and I really like pie. Uh, I don't know if you like, I know Josh likes baklava, and that's kind of a fancy dessert. <clears throat> but I'm a pie guy. Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern yes, that's true. Uh, and I, I like, not only because I'm Dutch, but I like a good Dutch apple pie with that crumb topping on, on it and the rich apple filling and the crust. And you know what? I could actually take each one of those individually and probably have a bowl full of them and be happy. Yeah. I could have the crumb topping, I'd be happy. I could take the apple filling, I'd be happy. And I'm a simple guy. I'll eat a cooked crust. I mean, that, just give me a crust. I'll eat it. But there is something beautiful when you put the three of them together and what you get. And my wife makes the best apple pie. It's kind of a funny. My German wife makes a Dutch apple pie that we got from a recipe from a Chinese woman. So uh, I don't know, but it's it's really good stuff. Um, so that that's kind of what we're going to do today. What I felt like God did, he gave me the crumb topping, he gave me the apple middle, he gave me the crust, and all three of them are good. All three of them are very good, and all three of them together are super good. And so that's what we're going to walk through today. So our first pass through this text kind of gets to our attention, and I think it's the thing that I've read devotions on, I've heard sermons on, and our hearts and minds are kind of drawn to this first set of workers. The workers who come to get paid, and they've worked this full day, and they have grumbling hearts. In fact, as we grow up, uh, we would probably say it's not fair. That would be the way we would translate this in a modern day language. And it's not fair is something that we start saying even at a very young age. Even little perfect Evelyn Mead has probably said it's not fair at some point in time. And, uh, <laughs> and it, you know, it comes out of us, whether it's somebody got a bigger cookie or, uh, They've got to do something that, you know, a sibling got to do something that someone else uh, didn't get to do, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or as we grow up, it's related to why did they get that job or have that car or have that house or their kids do this and our kids don't, you know. It goes with us our whole lives. It's not fair. Well, these guys, they worked all day and they're tired and they're ready to go home. And I mean, to be fair, they were out there under the scorching heat the whole day. They worked hard. You know, if uh, if they had had the, the local UVW 2024, the United Vineyard Workers, at that point in time, they probably would have had, you know, a fair case for some type of uh, discussion with management here about what a worker should get paid. And this is the kind of the cool thing that Jesus does in so many of his parables and stories where he takes us through a story and we start taking a side in the story and then again he inverts things on us. And they say, you know, we bore the burden of the day, the scorching heat. It doesn't seem fair, but we've got to ask ourselves what really is not fair here. 
And Jesus' first question that the master of the vineyard asks is, he says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I mean, the reality here is if you took away all the other workers who showed up that day and worked, and you just had this first set of workers who came in the morning and worked their day and had gone up and gotten paid and had gone home, they would have been happy. They would have been content. They made an agreement. It was for a fair wage. They worked their day. They would have gone home, been able to put food on their table, and everything would have been fine. But we tend to look at other people around us and not just look at what God has done in our lives. So this is a parable. It's a metaphor. Who, who is Jesus referencing in the course of this? Is he talking back in chapter 19 to those religious leaders who may still be standing around at this point in time? Is he talking to them, those who felt like they had privilege and power? The shepherds of God's people who have their own issues of jealousy with this new teacher who's come on the block. Is he referencing back to the disciples blocking the little children from coming to him? A gospel that's for everybody. Maybe that rich young ruler who thought his works were enough but not willing to give up his riches to fully embrace the kingdom of God. Or our good friend Peter. He says, what's in it for us? We've been with you. We've left all. How about for us? Is he addressing us? Maybe there's times where we feel like, well, I've been a believer for since I was four years old. They're only a believer in a short period of time. I've got some corner on my relationship with the Lord or his grace. Those who have been part of our church for a long time versus those who are relatively new. I'm more saved. I'm more repentant. Somehow I'm more deserving. God, in his generosity, extends his covenant to us. Will we accept his terms? They're good terms. Why do we feel the need to compare ourselves to others? Again, the master of the house says, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Takes what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Does the master not have the right to do with what belongs to him? They got paid the same amount. Yes, they work longer, but you know what? For those who worked the whole day, they weren't standing around idle in the marketplace wondering how they were going to feed their family or take care of them. They had purpose to their day and purpose to their time. Oftentimes, we all know this, our hearts and our emotions, they deceive us. They deceive us all the time. And as I was going through this, I felt like I needed a reality check. These folks needed a reality check. They were not only given a fair deal, but they were given a generous deal. In fact, they didn't have to go to look for work. He came to them and he offered them work. And not only a fair wage, a good wage, a generous wage. And again, if the other workers hadn't have come along, they had, wouldn't have thought twice about the whole thing. And so here are some questions I think will be up on the slide that we've got to ask. I had to ask my grumbling heart as I start off this new year. Is there any area of jealousy or complaint or unfairness I have in my heart? How does this reflect 
or affect my relationship with the master? Does it make me grumble against him, what he's chosen chosen to do for other people versus what I feel like I'm owed for some reason? How does this affect my relationship with other people, brothers and sisters in Christ, or other people around me? Am I comparing myself to them and what they've got versus what I've got, what goodness God's shown them versus what goodness he's shown me? How does this affect my joy in what he's given me? Grumbling hearts don't tend to create joyful hearts. And I think these are things that we, that I need to consider uh, as I look at the scripture and as I look at these workers and why they're in the story. But as I started to think about this and reflect on this generous grace that was given and these grumbling hearts that were dealing with that grace and that goodness, I went back and I said, okay, is this, this there's a lot here in this first pass through the scripture, but is that it? So then I went through the second pass and uh, the second one was good too. <laughs> and that's there's a plentiful harvest and we can't miss this. And I don't, Josh and I were talking about this this week. I don't want to like overplay this metaphor of the harvest and the workers, but it is, pun intended, it is ripe. (laughs) It is ready. It is a good metaphor that Jesus has given here. The harvest is ripe and ready. I don't know if you've ever been, again, I grew up in farms. My my grandfather was a farmer. He had some uh, grapes growing on, uh, on some, a part of his farm. And I can still remember, I was thinking about this yesterday, I can still like taste one of those grapes that was ripe and big and green and taking it off and putting it, and I don't think I've ever tasted a grape like that the whole rest of my life. And the beauty of those clusters of grapes hanging there just like begging to be harvested. The grape harvest, when it is time to harvest it, it needed to be harvested immediately. There was literally urgency to it. If the rains came too soon, it would destroy the crop that was there and ready and waiting to be harvested. Again, the master of the house, we're drawn to this picture that is here in this parable. The master of the house, he's concerned about his harvest field. It's his crop, it's his harvest, it's his land, it's his stuff, and he wants it taken care of well. He wants it gathered together and brought in. And so he goes out, the master of the house, he doesn't even send out somebody on his behalf. He goes out to get workers to bring into his harvest field. He goes out seeking workers. He sets the terms with the workers. It's a good agreement. He's the one who creates it and sets it with them. He keeps seeking more workers. Workers that are not only compensated with equity, but they're given purpose for their days. This makes me think back to other words of Jesus that Matthew recorded for us. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus gives purpose to his disciples and those listening to him. and says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
This is the God who calls us. He calls us and gives us purpose and says, look, I'm giving you a glorious purpose, a glorious purpose that that makes you a light to the nations and to the people around you. The harvest is ripe and ready. The harvest is plentiful. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus again, Matthew records that Jesus went out through the cities and villages. And I, I try to put this into my mind's eye of thinking him going through these cities and villages and teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This is the master of the harvest having compassion on his people that he's seeing as he's passing through those dusty streets of Palestine. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Again, a scripture we've heard many times, but again, you layer it into this parable. And it, it, there's, there's urgency to it. There's a beauty in it of a God who deeply loves his creation. There's an endless need for workers because God's harvest is plentiful and it is ready. And we cannot let the things of this world distract us from that reality. Everything in the media and news and everything else wants to convince us that we're in an anti-religious, anti-God society. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is a lie from Satan. It is not true. In fact, most studies, when people go out and they study, and there's a sociologist from uh, Baylor University who has studied this, Rodney Stark, and he's gone out and he's polled people. And people, they're frustrated with church, and there's some good reasons to be frustrated with church. But people are looking for Jesus. They're looking for a Messiah. They're not anti-religious. They're anti-people who have tried to represent Jesus in a wrong way. And we have an opportunity to change that, to transform that. We have an opportunity to be a light to the world and to demonstrate and show them Jesus in a way that no one else is going to show them. I joked at the beginning about New Year's goals and resolutions uh, we all probably have a different take on whether we should do those or not do those. And we've had mixed success in doing them or not doing them. And a few years ago, I found myself, I found a little caveat, uh, so I didn't have to be frustrated by January 8th of each year. And that was I just made a life plan. And I figured I'll make a life plan and I have my whole life to accomplish this thing rather than just, you know, try to do it every January. And it's working pretty well. Uh, I'm making slow progress, um, plodding through it every year, and I just do little tune-ups as I get into the new year with the life plan, and uh, it's been good for me. Um, but I do, as I was thinking about that, and uh, we can debate all day long whether you should do goals and resolutions or just focus on habits uh, or whatever else, but I do think that there are some kingdom goals that need to transform our lives and our lives as a corporate body. And Jesus gives us purpose. And as we look at this and we think about this harvest field that needs to be harvested, there's something really good in there for us, for a kingdom goal, for us as a body of Christ. The master comes and he brings people to be part of his harvest field. And friends, he's brought us, he's called us, he's extended his grace to us. 
If you're sitting here today, then God's working in your life in some way. People don't just choose to go out on a cold, snowy morning and go sit in a church and listen to some guy talk. God's doing something in our lives, something that we need to be awakened to. He's bringing people in. In fact, as the workers, you know, we need we need to be so thankful for the generosity that He's shown us and the grace He's shown us. It's like I want to point Him to other people that He can bring in. Master, thank you for hiring me. You know what? There's some people over on the other side of town that maybe you need to go check out. And there's some people over here. and There's some people in this apartment complex over here. And there's some people over in this island off the coast of South Asia that need you. You've been so generous to us, Lord. Please go to others and bring them in. This is the call, the beckoning to call to the Lord of the harvest to bring more workers. It's a privilege for us to be able to serve Him and work with Him and harvest the field so more people can understand and know His generosity and His goodness. Disciples, which we are as followers of Jesus, we are not disciples just to be disciples into ourselves and our own and what we get and what we have, but we're disciples so we can be disciple makers. He calls us so that we can go and we can bring in a harvest and we can bring other people to His throne. Do we wonder what our purpose is this year? Do we wonder what our kingdom goals should be this year for us as individuals or for a church? That's it. That's it. Pray for harvest. Pray for workers to go to the harvest field. Be a worker going into the harvest field. There's nothing more glorious and purposeful than that. We also we need to not give up on people. I mean, again, there's so much we could take into this metaphor here. We pray for workers, but we pray for salvation of people. We think of that 11th hour person who needs to be brought in. We think of the thief on the cross. Can't get much more of 11th hour than that. And he's welcome into paradise. Did he have the actions and activities throughout the course of his life that led to a place where you would think that this man was going to get into the kingdom of heaven? No, but there's a softness of his heart in the final moments of his days and Jesus turns to him and welcomes into paradise. You don't give up on people. There may be people around us from our workplace to our families that hearts are hard and they're reticent to the gospel. Friends, we don't give up on them. We pray for them. We're diligent in speaking the truth to them. We find opportunities to show them good works and good deeds and love and talk about Jesus as often as we can. My dad's mom was in her early 90s when a woman at her care home led her to Christ. My dad had tried, I had tried, different people had talked to her over the course of her life, and in that moment in the last year of her life, her heart was softened and she came to Jesus. Eternally grateful for that. We don't give up on anybody. Here's Jesus, the King of all, all power, all glory, all authority. And he laid it all down and he took on the form of a servant. Philippians 2, 6 to 8 says, Who, though he was on the form of God, did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
talk about this inverted message. The one with all the authority, the one who created everything, turned it in so that he could come and walk these dusty streets and touch the people that he created and then sacrifice himself for every person. It made me question, you know, am I really going to get all bent out of shape about what I think is not fair? When I have this example of Christ who left all, gave up all, not only came here but suffered and died for me, for us, that's not fair. I don't know about you, but this, it moves in my heart as I engage with the Scripture. I'm trying to be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us through this text. And I have to ask, as I've done here, what's the status of my heart? Is there something grumbling in there that needs to be changed and adjusted? Do I need to look at things from a different perspective? What's my purpose that God has given me? There's a harvest that needs to be harvested. I can pray for workers. I can be part of those who are going out and harvesting this amazing harvest of his people. And that then led me to this third and final pass through the text. And I had to consider what is prompting me within my spirit. And I believe that that is the master's generous grace. At the end of the day, you go through this thing and we look at the workers and we look at the harvest. But the thing that kept drawing me back was to the master of this house. And that final line down there, am I not allowed to do what belongs to, what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? Oh, Lord, I hope not. He seeks us out. He seeks us out. While we were yet in our sin, he came to us. It's amazing, unmerited grace that this God shows to us. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, not a work of our own, not any laws that we fulfilled or things we did or things we acquired along the way, but because of His grace, not our works, the only thing that we have to boast in. And it is an awesome thing to boast in, It's the grace of God. This leads us to a point, I hope it does, I hope for each of us, it leads us to a point of awe. Thank you, Lord, for this grace that you've shown. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. I I would be nothing without that. It's the beauty of God setting the terms. He provides all that we need. We don't bring anything but humble submission and faithful service. It led me to ask the question of myself, if all he provided was salvation, would that be not enough? Wouldn't that be enough? Somewhere during the course of my life, the first hour, the third hour, the fifth hour, the eleventh hour, he simply came and revealed his goodness and his salvation to me, and that was all that would be enough. But he provides so much more. God pursues us. He shows equity. Doesn't Jew, Greek, man, woman, slave, free, first hour, third hour, fifth hour, eleventh hour, the thief on the cross, the perfect follower of the law, my truth is for you, my grace is for you. I want you included into my harvest. 
God provides the salvation. God satisfies the covenant agreement. God's grace is everything. His grace is more than enough. Is that not fair? Do we now want all people to receive this goodness and grace? His grace extends to us so that in a selfless way we can extend it to others. Our hearts should be moved. I know other people who need to be included in this. That should motivate our prayers and our lives around our tables at home and our community groups and our church. There's other people who need to be included into this great harvest. Let's be active in praying for them this year. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, stand in awe of his grace. Join me in that. Join me in standing in awe of his grace and let it transform our our thinking and our actions and our attitudes this year. And if you happen to be here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, friends, there is no better time than now. You are here for a reason. I truly believe that. God is here. You are here because he's extending his grace to you. His arms are open. He wants to welcome you into his family. Well, I, I shared through you my little bit of a journey here. I've wrestled with my heart. What am I? What do I have a grudge with? What do I covet? Where is my gratitude for what he has done for me? I, I'm working through that. I'm reconsidering my purpose. My purpose every day, that there's this harvest that is plentiful and ready. How am I engaged in that? Through prayer and through my activities. And at the end, I just, I simply want to stand in awe of the generous grace of God. Unmerited grace offered for each one of us. Nothing more beautiful than that. As I close here, I was thinking back to chapter 19 again and what preceded this parable. And we don't often get... Uh, the full picture. We get these stories of Jesus and things go on to people who intersect with his life and they move on and we don't know whatever happened to that person. We don't know what happened to these religious leaders. We know that some of them pushed for his crucifixion. We know some became secret disciples and others became faithful followers of his after his death. We don't know what happened to those little children. I hope that after that blessing they received that their parents raised them and good godly values and introduce them to Jesus? Or that rich young ruler, did he ever have a second question in his heart later on as he went away? But the one person that we do get a little bit of a picture of is Peter. And I'm thankful for that. This ruddy, spontaneous kind of guy who says things that he probably wished he hadn't half the time. And God in his goodness and grace matures Peter and grows Peter And in 1 Peter chapter 5, we get a little picture of what the goodness and grace of God did in Peter's heart over time. And Peter writes to the church. And think about this in reflection to chapter 19 and who Jesus dealt with. And think about this in reflection with this parable that Jesus told the disciples. And over time, the Holy Spirit working on Peter's life to where he writes the church. And he's a shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, Not like those religious leaders that we talked about, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Here's the part where he got the first shall be the last, and the last will be the first. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humble humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, Jesus, he, he left them with last will be first, and the first will be last. Throughout the New Testament, we see this idea here that Peter talks about of God opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble. Blessed are the humble back in the Beatitudes for what? They're going to inherit the earth. And God takes this impulsive fisherman and transforms him. He softens his heart. He aligns his purposes. He refocuses his attention on the grace of God, the source of all we need. And then Peter says, following in verses 6 and 7 and 10, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, just like that master going out, he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, and he will be the one to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you forever. Well, if our communion stewards would come forward, we'll start to prepare our hearts for communion. And again, as believers, I think we need to stand in awe of this unmerited and generous grace that God has provided for us. And we can celebrate that grace by extending it to others. And as we reflect here, again, we think about Jesus, the Son of God, who humbly took on the form of a servant. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And unfairly, he was crucified and took on the sins of the world for us. But in his generous grace, he paid the penalty for the sin that we rightly deserved. He died and he conquered death and he rose again and he ascended to heaven where he reigns eternally and his promises return to us. And that night when Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together and he said, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. And my body's gonna be broken and my blood's gonna be shed. And every time that you take of this meal, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember grace of a generous father. So brothers and sisters, if you're following Jesus today, come to his table in awe of his goodness and grace that he's bestowed upon us and remember what he has done for us. And friends, if you are not walking with Jesus today, again, there's no better time than the present. We'll have prayer people in the back if you want to talk to somebody and meet with somebody back there and just ask about those next steps. But, or just stay quietly in your seat and uh, take time to reflect on the generous grace that God is showing to you today. So let us come and let us remember and let us stand in awe of the grace of God. Come to his table.